Kent. Good morning, everyone. Kids, you're dismissed for Gospel Project. If you are not familiar with what the kids do, you can, something you can pray for for them when you get bored listening to me. Um, the kids are working through a three-year curriculum called Gospel Project that takes all the stories of the Scripture, walks through them, and then connects each to Christ and the gospel. So that's what they do when they leave. Thankful for everybody that helps with that. Uh, today, we're going to be in Luke chapter 10. So please turn with me there. Be in Luke 10, verse 25. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the chair in front of you. Feel free to take that and make a habit of reading it if you don't own one of your own. So we're in Luke 10. Thus uh, far in our 4Gs series, we've said three things. We've said that uh, God is great, so we don't have to be in control. God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. That's all wonderful news, isn't it? Now it just takes the rest of our lives to actually learn to believe those things and live them out. But we have each other to help do that, to encourage each other uh, in our walks with the Lord. Today, we want to consider what does this great, glorious, and good God ask from his creation? So in other words, because God is everything we've said he is so far, because God's great, because God's glorious, and because God's good, what ought our response to him be? That make sense? Okay. What does God expect from us? Lots of places in the Bible we could go to see this, but I know of no place uh, better that puts it in a more succinct way than Luke chapter 10. I'll read starting verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Sounds like a joke, doesn't it? Teacher? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Uh, in the Old Testament, so the first two-thirds of the Bible, Genesis through Malachi, there are between six and 700 laws. There's a lot. And here they're reduced to a single command. Love God, love people. The epicenter of what our great, glorious, and good God demands from us is that our, our hearts would be caught up with an obedient love for him. And that our lives would be filled with a sacrificial love for people. That's it. Love God, love people. Sounds rather simple, doesn't it? Love God, love people. Well, let's dive into those a little bit and see if they're as simple as it might sound. 
Let's take loving your neighbor as yourself. What does that kind of love look like? One of the real challenges we have today in looking at a text like this is all the background noise in our minds about the word love. For, for starters, we say things like, I love you to a, a child, and I love coffee. It's hard to distinguish what kind of love you're talking about, right? Hopefully you don't love your coffee as much as your child. But your child probably loves it when you have your coffee. But, but more than that, uh, today we tend to think of love as giving each other freedom to pursue whatever we want to pursue without constraint or judgment. So the way in which we express love is by sort of having a hands-off approach to our behaviors and attitudes and simply letting each other pursue whatever we want to pursue. And so love in current American culture is the freedom from constraint or judgment. Now, the younger you are, the greater the probability that that is your innate way of thinking about love. But that's not at all biblical love. That's not the love talked about in the law, certainly. We can't deal with that in depth today, but just know that real love is sacrificial committed service for the good of others. It's not the freedom from constraint just to do whatever you want to do. We can't deal with that in depth, but if that strikes a chord with you, I'd love to buy you coffee and talk about that more. So if that's not love, then what is love? Particularly, what is love among Christians? Well, a great chapter that tells us is 1 Corinthians 13. If you read this in your wedding, I apologize, but this has nothing to do with wedding love. This is talking about love in the church. It says this, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So friends, let's be honest. Does that describe how you love people, particularly fellow church members? Would we describe each other, even most days, as patient, kind, not envious, not arrogant, not rude, selfish, or irritable? Probably not. And if that is normally how you are, praise God. But all that it takes to mess that up is a little less sleep. We, we, we are not innately loving people. We're just not. The loveliest among us are not always loving. Selfishness is natural. Love is not. So when it comes to the second commandment, we've failed. But let's go back to the first. Maybe the first one's easier. Because after all, the reason we don't love each other very well is because we don't find each other all that lovely, right? But God is lovely. So perhaps we do better there. Loving God with all our heart, soul, strength, 
in mind. If we get that one, then we're batting 500. And for the two of you that like baseball, that's really good. That's amazing. Nobody bats 500. Let me pick one of those kinds of loving God. It says to love the Lord your God with all your heart. What does that mean? To love God with all your heart means to treasure Him above every other love. It means to worship Him, to every moment of every day come to a place of complete obedience and submission to God. It means to see Him, not with your eyes, but with your affections, as being always and forever for your good, and the highest one worthy of your love. Do you love God like that all the time? Maybe that's asking a bit much. So let's go to the easiest kind of love. Loving the Lord your God, there is an ant on the stand. Let's take the easiest one. I didn't really eat it. <laughs> Loving God with all our minds. After all, our, our minds are simply our thoughts. Surely we can love God with our thoughts. Surely we can love God with our minds. Here's what Philippians 4 says terms of the life of the mind. Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Does that describe the life of your mind on a typical day? Do you love God by thinking lovely thoughts about God? Does what is honorable and true and just and pure naturally fill your mind day in and day out? Do you always think of God as great, glorious, and good? Is there one among us who does? No. Are you glad you came today? No. Friends, even when it just comes to our thoughts, there's not a one of us who has loved God well. Our minds are filled with worry, anxiety, anger, jealousy, doubts, and an occasional tip of the hat to God. So universally, all people have failed to love God and love people. Theologians call this total depravity, meaning not that you're as bad as you could ever be. You still have potential. But not that you're as bad in every way as you could be but that every part of you and every part of me has been affected by the fact 
that we don't naturally love God and people. Every part of us has been filled with the effects of sin. A couple of years ago, the Skinners and Newkirks went to San Diego for a vacation in the summer. And I was trying to be helpful. We rented a house. So I filled the dishwasher with dirty dishes and soap and then turned it on. And then we were gathering all our stuff up, getting ready to go to the beach. And a few minutes later, uh, the kitchen had quite a lot of bubbles. So I went and opened the door, and I've never seen anything like this before. It was literally completely filled with bubbles. You couldn't see the dishes, couldn't see the racks, just bubbles, B- bubbles pouring out, bubbles, bubbles, bubbles everywhere. Turns out I put the wrong kind of soap in the dishwasher. If you ever want a great practical joke, I've learned that that works. The dishwasher was totally full of bubbles. You and I are totally full of sin. When I opened that door, all I saw was bubbles. When God opens your heart, your mind, your will, all he sees is sin. So what does a great, glorious, good God expect? Well, he expects that we love him and love people. But universally, we have failed to do so. Now, a typical American response to this is to say, well, God grades on a curve. Now, certainly we don't use that language, but our orientation to how we think about God shows that Uh, Many Americans seem to think God is like the college professor we always wanted. So if I'm gradually kinder and more ethical than my neighbor or my coworker or my teammates or my extended family, then God is good with me because I'm better than most people. Now, again, not that we actually verbalize that, but that our posture before God does express it. So we stuff our internal sense of shame and guilt with the hope of a heavenly sliding scale. But, but friend, that misunderstands the very nature of God. That is not the way God works. It's impossible that that would be the way God works. Let me show you that from James. James chapter 2 says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you will love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. You do not commit adultery, but do murder. You've become a transgressor of the law. Well, maybe your response to that is, well, but, but I haven't murdered. Good. I'm glad. Maybe your response is, I haven't even committed adultery. Great. But this text is actually about showing partiality. 
Who among us hasn't done that? I mean, are you really telling me you've never given deference to somebody because you're aware that they had more money and they might share with you when you had a need? Or that you've never given the one child you like more attention over the other child who's more difficult? That you've never helped a stranger over another because one was attractive and the other was homey? That you've never given an invitation to a friend over another friend because of what it might get you in return? Friends, we've all shown partiality. Probably many of us in the last seven days. We're all guilty of it. And so the scripture says here that showing partiality is in the sense of following the law or breaking the law, the same as murder or adultery. There is no curve. It's all or nothing because God is holy. He's perfect. All the greatness and glory and goodness of God for us demands our response of love. And yet all of us have failed. Everyone, certainly in varied ways, with varied intensity. But even those of us who most people would look at and say, that's a responsible, law-abiding, good citizen. Even those good actions are commingled with evil motive. And so like that dishwasher full of bubbles, we are just full of the sickness of sin. Now our instinctive response to this is one of two possibilities. We're going to get to some good news, okay? We're going to get there. But instinctively we tend to respond to this in one of two ways. And this this will push us to think perhaps a little bit more deeply than we often do. But give me a couple of minutes to explain this, then I want to connect it into the scriptures for us. One way some of us deal with this is what we might call moralism or moralistic legalism. Or if you're older, then you probably grew up hearing of this as simply legalism. The other way we tend to deal with this is something called antinomianism. Now, I know it's summer, and the, the heat is already frying our brains. So let me make it a little more simple. Rule following and rule breaking. Most of us, when we come to recognize the fact that we have not loved God and loved people, we drift towards one of these two extremes. Either we want to deal with that by following the rules, or we want to deal with this by simply ignoring or breaking the rules. Let me try to explain those very briefly. Rule followers tend to take comfort in doing what's right. You're the good students, the good coworkers, you're the neighbors everybody wants. You are the the dream partner in a school group project. (laughs) The only bad part of this that you're aware of is that you tend towards perfectionism. And so 
as long as everything fits in the nice little neat box, you look great. But as soon as there's a slight variance, then you tend to kind of go nuts on the inside and become very difficult to live with. Now, perhaps without even realizing it, what is all that? Well, it's that you tend to think you can add to God's work in your life through your good behavior. You, in, a, in the extreme form, people that are rule followers think, I've been made right with God by what I do. So, they're not a church like ours, but there are many churches full of people who think, I'm saved because of my behavior. But that's kind of an extreme form of this. A much more common and mild form is, not I'm saved by what I do, but I stay in good standing with God based on my behavior. So God loves me in an ongoing way because I follow the rules. So I, I find the love of God because I love God and love people. In other words, if I put it a different way, you tend to think of God's kindness to you as being contingent upon your own moral behavior. So some of us are just kind of born that way. We're wired to think I'm a rule follower. Now, on the other hand, our rule breakers. You tend to treat rules like stop signs. They are mere suggestions for everybody else but you. So you kind of slow down, look to make sure nobody's looking, and then just keep right on going. Right? You may be the life of the party. If you're young, you probably have lots of friends. And you tend to think of the rule followers in the room as uptight fuddy-duddies. What's underneath that is you tend to be people that believe joy and peace come from ignoring rules. Because rules are not for your good. They're for everybody else, but you're good enough to not need the rules because they just squelch life. Rule followers, rule breakers. Are you still with me? Okay. Now, these sound on the surface like two extremely different approaches rooted in completely different kinds of thinking. But down at the root, they're exactly the same. They flourish within the same approach, the same thought processes about God. Moralistic legalists and antinomianism are simply two sides of the same coin. Sinclair Ferguson calls them non-identical twins from the same womb. Now, what does he mean? Here's what he means. He means both rule followers and rule breakers believe the same lie, the exact same lie. God isn't good. And so the, the ground that the root of rule following or rule breaking lives from is the belief that people tell me God's good, the Bible tells me God's good, but my experience has shown me God isn't 
good. And so when we respond to that with two very different ways of living, and yet they're rooted in the same thing. And so we end up having to earn God's approval through rule following, or we think we just got to enjoy life now while we can through rule breaking. But just to be clear, neither of these things fix the problem, do they? If you think back over the course of your life, can you see these two tendencies? It, it's crystal clear in my home. There are four people, and in our case, two rule followers, two rule breakers. One adult of each kind and one, of chi one child of each kind. It is readily obvious who is who. Now, where does this all leave us? Well, it leaves us helpless. It leaves us hopeless. It leaves us damned. Except for one more G. God's gracious. Grace looks upon each of us and walks into the picture. Or to put it more precisely, Christ hangs on the cross, bearing our guilt and condemnation, that we might enjoy his perfection and might be eternally caught up in the love of God our Father. Brothers and sisters, our God is a gracious God. He looks upon us in this state of helplessness and hopelessness, of failure to love God and love people, of choosing to deal with that through rule-following and rule-breaking. And instead of just leaving us like that forever, he chooses to pour out his grace. And the grace of God can be summed up in a word. That word is the gospel. The gospel, as you may know, is the great news that Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, and rose victoriously. He took the place of sinners so that sinners can take his place of righteousness. He obeyed the commands to love God and love people. And then by dying on a cross in place of sinners, his place of moral perfection is given to his people, and his people's sin is given to him. This is great news because in Christ we are not helpless or hopeless anymore. This is the miracle of grace. Christ gave himself for you and now gives himself to you. That is God's grace. Grace is the most amazing word there is. One author described it like this. Grace is a provision for men who are so fallen they cannot lift the acts of justice, so corrupt they cannot change their own natures, so averse to God they cannot turn to Him, so blind they cannot see Him, so deaf they cannot hear Him, so dead that He Himself must open their graves and lift them up into resurrection. 
It's not good. Why is it that to write well, you've got to have initials before your last name? In the fourth century, an African named Augustine, whose life had been consumed with sexual sin, came to Christ. He was saved by grace. His moral filth was put on Jesus, and Jesus' perfect righteousness was put on him. And he came to describe this as totus Christus, which is Latin for the whole Christ. He came to see that in Christ there is full, complete, free grace. Grace that overwhelmed his former life and gave him a new one. the whole Christ. And in our remaining few minutes, let me speak to two ways of application from God's grace. First, to those in the room who have already believed on Christ. Friend, God God is gracious, so you do not have to prove yourself. Your behavior matters. Your ways of thinking matters. but not in the sense of earning a place before God and not in the sense of even maintaining a place of righteousness before God. That is a complete misunderstanding of how grace works. Grace is a gift. And it's a gift that if you've believed in it, God had already opened it before the gift was even given to you. All you simply did was respond to the grace already given to you in Christ. It's not a gift you maintain based on proper usage of. Because the giver of the gift will be the maintainer of the gift. He's the sustainer of the gift. So think of this just simply for rule followers for a moment. The lawyer in Luke 10, without a doubt, was a rule follower. He had likely lived the majority of his life obeying many of the rules. And when he said, God, how, Jesus, how can I be right with God? Jesus knew he was a rule follower, so he responded with a question. To which he got the response. Well, love God, love people. That is a correct understanding of what the law calls for. And yet, this lawyer had missed the whole point. Because he thought he had obeyed. So sometime this afternoon, I encourage you to read the rest of that passage. It flows through a parable, a story, in which Jesus shows this man, you have not loved God or people. But this man's sense that he had followed the rules was blinding him to the grace of God. This man had been living every day to prove himself. 
And Jesus' response was, Brother, you are outside of the grace of God because your legalism is blinding you to his gracious nature. If you're a rule follower, would you begin to think about this truth? God is gracious. You don't have to prove yourself. God is gracious. You don't have to prove yourself. Now, the rule breaker in the room might be hearing me, and your response to that is, well, then I can just do whatever I want to do. Read Romans 6. You're not the first person to ever respond that way. In fact, we have that response in the Bible itself along with its subsequent answer. When we really get the grace of God and a proper understanding of our failure to obey God, when those two things become wed, then the thing you want more than anything else is to live obediently. Not to earn something from God and not begrudgingly, but simply because you've experienced the grace of God, the goodness of God. And so it turns both rule following and rule breaking on its head. How would this apply to us as God's people together? One area of application. As we move toward two gatherings later this fall, we're 11 weeks away. We're going to blink and it will be here. And it's going to feel really different around here for a while. Why would we do this? Well, the reason is so more people can hear the gospel and experience the joy of church membership. But we'll only be effective at that if we provide an alternate community. A community not marked by earned performance, but by received grace. And so let's labor hard. Let's fill all the service roles we'll talk about next week. Let's give sacrificially more than we ever have. But let's not see them as ends unto themselves. Let's not do them so the rule followers in the room will feel better about yourself and the rule breakers will just say, everybody else can do it. Let's do them in such a way that we're rounding each other up into praise of our gracious God so that more and more people can come to know him. Now, to those here in the room who have not believed on Christ yet, the offer of the gospel stands. And it is an offer not to a concept, but to a person. The gospel is ultimately Jesus Christ. And so the gospel invitation is not come to an idea, come to a concept. It's come to Christ, come to a person. Come to Jesus, who gave himself and rose again.
is alive and well, whose arms are stretched out wide with all the grace of God. Do you believe this message? Then rest assured that you can, in fact, come to Christ because Christ has already come to you. What do you do? Well, you simply repent and believe. You turn from sin and turn to God. And that will open up to you an entirely different kind of existence. It's been a fun series, hasn't it? God is great. God is glorious. God is good. God is gracious. God is great. God is glorious. God is good. God is gracious. What you and I most need every day is to see God as he really is. We started the series with these words. The most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. Every moment of every day, whether you're here today and think of yourself as an atheist, whether you've been a Christian for 50, 60 years, every moment of every day, the lens through which you look at life is made up of all kinds of things. The number one ingredient is how you think about God. Your behavior and your thinking, church, will change more than you ever could imagine. If you'll look not first to behavior, but to what you think about when you think about God. And if you'll ask him, if you'll open your life to other Christians and ask for their input and help, then you'll find that as you think more consistently in accordance with this 4G God, that sin becomes far less attractive. And holy living becomes far more fun. And the hard things in life just don't have the same grinding down effect on your soul that they do now. Because you focus beyond the behavior underneath it to your thoughts of God. And this isn't psychobabble. This is basic Christianity. We're transformed through the renewal of our minds. God is great. God is glorious. God is good. God is gracious. Let's pray.